And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and the TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. You know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X. And now both TP5 and TP5X are visible. And now TP5 and TP5X are available in high visibility yellow. And you guys know how much I love the yellow golf ball. Have you made the switch? Check out TaylorMade.com for more information. All right, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is Michael Whalen. Michael was one of the driving forces behind the Golf Channel when it got started back in 1995. He was the original VP of production and the executive producer. He hired all the people in front of and behind the cameras. Michael's career also had him at HBO, CBS, and NBC. He's a production genius that's been silent for way too long. His father spent time as the trainer for my hometown Pittsburgh Pirates in the early to mid-1960s. So Michael's had the opportunity to meet several of the Pirate legends, which I'm dying to talk with him about. And it's an honor to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Chris. It's been a long time. You and I have been chatting for many, many months, almost a couple of, almost a year now. And uh, greetings from the Sunshine State. It's great to be here. <laughs> and uh, uh, the introduction was exciting. Great PGA uh, stars, LPGA stars and legends. So uh, probably the nicest thing that's been said to me in 22 years. <laughs> I find that hard to imagine, but I can't thank you enough <laughs> for being here to share your story, Michael. But thank you for the kind um, introduction. It's been a long time. It's been, uh, it's hard to believe that it's been 20, oh my gosh, 25 years uh, since I sat in Orlando, Florida on a dry race board and put together the Golf Channel. And, and I certainly want to get to all of those stories. I, I want to start out quickly going back to uh, when you were a kid. Like I mentioned in your intro, and you and I have talked a little bit about this over social media, but your father was a trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I'm from Pittsburgh and, and, and grew up a huge Pirates fan. And I'm from actually Penn Hills. I know you lived in Monroeville, which is just down the street from Penn Hills for a yeah. while. And we were talking about Willie Stargell being my uh, baseball hero growing up. And you got to spend some time with Willie and a lot of those great pirate legends. Talk about that. Well, in, in 1959, my father got the job. He knew Danny Murtaugh, uh, the Pirates train, uh, the manager at the time, and Mr. Galbraith, who owned the Pirates and was good friends with both of them, and got the job as the trainer for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1959. Uh, and then in 60, obviously, one of the greatest World Series, the first World Series, that ever ended with a walk-off home run with uh, Mazeroski lining uh, a Ralph Terry fastball over the Longines clock in left field. But um, every Saturday and every Sunday as a little kid, I was the bat boy. I would go to the games, and I would hang out with my dad and Roberto Clemente and Elroy Face and uh, Bill Burt and Bob Friend and, and a, a rookie in 1962 by the name of Willie Stargell. And I, it was just a lot of fun hanging out with the Pirates. My typical day was my dad and I would get there around 9 o'clock. The players would gradually come in. And Roberto would always take me out to right field when they were warming up. And he would throw underhand balls to me. I'd hit him into the right field bleachers and run around Roberto Clemente for about 30 minutes uh, until I wore him out. <laughs> That's awesome. It was a great time, you know. Uh, uh, back in those days, it was, a, it was it was a different type of you know team. The players stayed with the uh, teams forever. 
uh, Roberto and, you know, the Bob friend who you know and Vernon Law and uh, Bill Verdon and Bill Mazeroski and Smokey. I mean, the list goes on and on. But uh, going to games back in old Forbes Field was really just a real pleasure getting to know Stan Musial and Hank Aaron and some of the greatest players of all time. And uh, it was just exciting hanging out with my dad back then. Yeah, and talk about that, that last piece, right? Because not only did you get to play catch with Clemente all the time, but, you know, Willie Mays and Stan Musial, Hank Aaron. Talk about some of the other fantastic legends that you had an opportunity to uh, interact with. Well, my, my dad was really kind of an unusual character. He was probably one of the greatest raconteurs, maybe the most well-known athletic trainer ever to be in sports. Not only was he with the Pirates, but after he left the Pirates in 65, 66, he went on to the New York Knicks where he won two world championships when they had Willis Reed and Walt Frazier, uh, Dave the Busher and crew. But, you know, my dad would just go next door to the clubhouse, which was right next door to the Pirates. And anytime the teams would come in, my dad just knew everybody. You know, back in those days, they hung out. They'd go out for a few drinks after the game. And whether it was Stan Musial or Willie Mays or uh, Hank Aaron back in those days or Eddie Matthews or Bob Gibson, um, you know, back in those days, the players came back and forth and they knew one another. And it was very, very common to see the other team, you know, hanging out in the clubhouse, playing cards with each other. And uh, it, I, I just got to know a lot of the greatest of all time. And they took a liking to me. And, uh, you know, it, I had baseball gloves from Hank Aaron back in those days and Stan Musial. And, and as I said, I got to play catch and, and whack a few balls into the right field uh, bleachers at Forbes Field. And, uh, you know, I really didn't realize the significance and magnitude uh, of what was going on. I was, you know, I was seven or eight or nine years old at the time. But looking back now, uh, my goodness gracious, they're the, the greatest of all times. And, you know, I was their adopted son every Saturday and Sunday when the visiting team came in. So I'm hoping for you, Michael, that you have one of the great sports memorabilia collections of all time. <laughs> yeah. Do you? I have nothing. I have nothing, Chris. I gave oh, it all away. I, I flushed it down the toilet. My, now, my sister, on the other hand, is the hoarder. She's got everything. She's got everything from Willis Reed's game jersey to the oh. first six-finger baseball glove that Bob Bailey, the third baseman of the Pittsburgh Pirates, tried out to an old catcher's mitt of Smokey Burgess to a bat of, Jer of Jerry Lynch, I think, when he set the record for most hits as a pinch hitter uh, in 63 or 64. But for me, no, nah, I blew it. I've got, I don't have much. Oh, oh I'm so sorry but, to but, hear that. But, but, but I do have the 1960 World Series ring. Oh, is that right? I do. I wear it every single day. My father, when he passed away uh, uh, about 15 years ago, gave me the, uh, the Forbes Field 1960 World Championship ring. Wow. Got to send me a picture so of that. My, I got that. My something. sister and brother got the two New York Knicks championship rings. That's awesome. Um, Michael, let's let's talk a little golf, and um, I, I kind of want to get your uh, beginnings in the in the production world. Now, going back to your days 
when you first were getting into the business as a production assistant with CBS. Talk about how you started and got down that path. Well, I'll make it a real quick story at CBS. I, I never had any intention of going to television. I I went to St. Mary's College on a baseball scholarship, and, and I wanted to be a doctor. I was a biology liberal arts major, and I thought that, that being a doctor, kind of following in my father's footsteps, was something I wanted to be. And uh, I was very, very blessed that I had the ability to go out to NYU Medical School uh, back in 1981, and my goal was to be an orthopedic surgeon and uh, never really wanted to do it, but I didn't know anything else. And as I said, following in my father's footsteps was something that I thought was important. Um, at the time, I happened to be dating a woman who was an actress of a soap opera called All My Children, and one night she took me out to an after-wrap uh, party, and at that party I happened to meet at the time, the president of CBS Sports, a guy by the name of Terry O'Neill, who happened to know my father very, very well, because my dad was with the Knicks at that time. And we just really hit it off. And he just said, look, if you ever decide one day not to be a doctor, there's always a job at CBS for me. And uh, when I went home that night, I really began to think that, you know what? I don't want to be a doctor. I love to write. I love sports. Uh, I love the idea of, of, of television production. What I saw at that soap opera was something that reminded me of a sporting event, the way the producers and the directors worked together, and it was it was just like a symphony. And so I went home. Uh, I was living with my father at the time, and about a week later, um, dropped out of NYU Med School and became a production assistant for CBS Sports. My father disowned me for about a year, thought I had lost my mind, and I worked at CBS for about a year and a half. Uh, they made some cuts. I got let go, got picked up by HBO in 1981 uh, for a seven-week show with Marvin Hagler Championship Pike and stayed there for 15 years. Yeah, so let's let's expound on that a little bit because I heard that, you know, one of your big, uh, big breaks came by the way of, you know, one of our friends over on the football side on our uh, show Thursday night tailgate, uh, former head of HBO Sports, Ross Greenberg. And, uh, you kind of latched on with Ross. And the next thing you know, like you say, you, you, you turn a, a few weeks with their boxing into a career practically. Talk about, you know, your time there, you know, the golden years of boxing, you know, back in the, in the eighties and the nineties with the, Hagler's and the Sugar Ray Leonard's and and all of those guys. What was that like? Well, when I when I went over to HBO in '81 as a freelance production assistant at the time, Ross was the senior producer for HBO. He had yet to be promoted to the president, and I, I worked directly with Ross. And it was it's through Ross Greenberg that I learned everything there is about television. I learned to be a better writer, a better producer. Ross probably is one of the greatest storytellers in the history of sports television. And I was just very, very blessed that for whatever reason, Ross and I got along like peanut butter and jelly. And uh, he really took me under his wings, beat me up badly every single day. Um, it took me a long time to realize that that was just tough love. Um, but, you know, thanks to Ross, uh, he developed me into 
one of the greatest writers and producers that uh, HBO had. And while I was there, there was some uh, leadership changes, and Ross went from senior producer to the president of HBO Sports, and I was lucky enough to be one of two top producers, along with Rick Bernstein, and we were the three amigos that produced all of the major fights. And we're talking about Hagler and Hearns, and we're talking about Mike Tyson and Larry Holmes and um, Julio Cesar Chavez and Meldrick Taylors. And, you know, if it was if it was a big fight, it was on HBO in the 80s. And they were the place to go. And, you know, some of the great fights that we did, obviously, were, were Hagler-Hearns. And then the biggest fight was when Buster Douglas knocked out uh, Mike Tyson in, in uh, Tokyo which is one of the biggest fights ever. And um, I was uh, very, very blessed to learn from the best. And you were there for that uh, that Tyson-Buster uh, Douglas fight, and I've seen pictures and things of that nature. What was it like before and after that fight? Well, you know, it, it's kind of funny because we, we when we stayed at the hotel, my room happened to be directly across from Mike Tyson's room. And I, and I got to know Mike Tyson very well through the years. It was myself and Rick Bernstein who were in charge of doing all the pre-fight stories on Mike Tyson. So just before the fight, when you would see a little behind-the-scenes story on, on Tyson, it was, it was usually Rick or I, or sometimes we did it together, would do all the stories. And I became good friends with, with Mike through the years. But, you know, being right across from him, I knew that there was something going on because Mike was doing a tremendous amount of partying and entertaining with the ladies that entire week. And it didn't seem like Mike was very focused on a, I don't know if he was a 40 to one or 60 to one underdog, Buster Douglas at the time, but it just didn't seem like that Mr. Tyson was in his fighting mood. So that particular night when we, or actually it was a daytime, it was a 12 in the afternoon uh, fight. Um, you know, the production truck in the production control room is always a well organized, chaotic place. Um, you know, while there's excitement going on in the ring, everybody has a professional job to do and it's, uh, it's, it's like a beautiful orchestra. But for this fight, it was a little bit different. I probably, Never in the history of any shows that I have ever done seen the entire production personnel get as wrapped up as fans and excited when Tyson got knocked down uh, earlier and almost knocked out. And then it came back where Tyson knocks uh, Buster Douglas down. And then in that final scene where Buster knocks him down and that beautiful handheld shot of Mike Tyson on the canvas trying to find his mouthpiece and putting in putting in it awkwardly the, the production trucks were shaking uh like a an earthquake in california and uh, it took us a while to get our composure to actually do the job that we were so but that was probably the most exciting night of sports that i've ever been involved in wow what a great story so, Michael, how do you how do you go from there to getting the opportunity to start up this thing called the Golf Channel? Well, it's you know you, it's always being in the right place at the right time. As I said, when Ross became 
the president of HBO Sports, there were two guys who were primarily responsible for all of the shows uh, at HBO, and that was Rick Bernstein and myself. And through the years, uh, I had become very, very good friends with one of our programming executives, a gentleman by the name of Bob Greenway, um, who negotiated a lot of deals with a management group called IMG, International Management Group, that, that represented Arnold Palmer. And we just did a lot of shows where they got to work side by side with me and saw exactly what type of a producer I was. So when the Golf Channel came around in 94, one of the first people that the Golf Channel hired was Bob Greenway to head up the corporate side of production. Bob was going to do all the negotiating of all the deals, whether it was European tour events, uh, footage uh, rights, and the first person that he came to to put together the entire network, how it looked, who was going to be in front and behind the cameras, was me. And he offered me the job on a cold New York day um, when it was about 30 degrees outside snowing. And the thought of me putting my uh, thumbprint uh, and ideas on a television network was something that I thought I would never get another shot at, nor would most people in the industry. And, uh, and that's kind of how it happened. Were you ner- nervous at all? You know, I, was, I wasn't. I was. I was. You know, I was comfortable at HBO. You know, you, when you work at a place and you know the people and you know the routine, you become very, very comfortable. And when you step out of your comfort zone, there's a lot of fear. Of course there was. I mean, there was 70 or $80 million that Joe Gibbs from Alabama had gotten together to put together this concept of a 24-hour golf channel, which if you took a poll, most people thought, had no chance in hell of maybe being successful. Um, and the entire responsibility of, you know, putting on a 24-hour channel that everybody was going to buy into uh, was, was extremely stressful. And you got to remember, back in 1994, there was two parallel networks that were being launched. One was Fox News that was being headed by Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes, they had about 90, maybe a billion dollars to play with. And then there was the Golf Channel that was going to bring me to Orlando in July, and they were going to give me four and a half months and as much uh, chewing gum and spit as I possibly needed (laughs) to put together a 24-hour Golf Channel. So the pressure of putting on that network in a short amount of time when there had been not one person hired when I came to Orlando yeah, it was, uh, you know, I didn't tell very many people, but, uh, but, but yeah, it was very, very fearful. It was, uh, you know, I, I knew my production abilities, but whether or not I could pull off all the moving pieces in time and get people from all over the world, about a hundred of them to get to Orlando quickly and put together these shows, uh, was pretty fearful. Now, luckily for me, I had all the shows created, designed, laid out. Uh, I had the roadmap pretty much done, so all I needed to do at some point was to get on the phone and start to call as many people as I possibly knew in the industry, and one of the biggest selling points was it was going to be in Orlando, Florida, and when you're calling people in uh, 
and snow and bad weather in Connecticut and New Jersey and New York, and you're telling them that you're going to be barbecuing in January, playing golf, and being a part of this golf network, uh, it was appealing to a lot of people. So I had that ace in my pocket. And uh, fortunately, I was able to pull it off. And in January of 95, uh, we pulled the switch. And lo and behold, um, it hasn't shut down since. So, yeah, so let's talk about that. A couple of things, right? As you talked about the, the ace you had in your pocket. Well, that, that, that ace isn't going to be there much longer because it's moving to Stamford, Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 you that's, that's, you know, that's, 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 from HBO, one of the things that we did there so well is we were just wonderful, impassioned storytellers, whether it was boxing, Wimbledon, inside the NFL. It didn't matter. What Ross told us is we tell beautiful stories and move people that watch it. And that's what the Golf Channel was going to be. It was going to be, in my mind, an intimate, interactive place where people at home who love the game as much as I did we're going to be able to connect with it, participate in it. And that was going to be the biggest thing. I remember being a little tiny kid growing up in a dysfunctional home, and I would go to bed at night listening to the radio, and what I would love to do is listen to Larry King. And I was a little tiny kid listening to Larry King, and I used to remember callers calling in and getting an opportunity to speak to Larry. And when they got through you could just hear it in their voice, the excitement, the thrill, the passion, the honor it was to be able to talk to Larry. And as weeks turned into months, turned into years, the same people would call back and there'd be this relationship that Larry would have from Joe from Iowa and Betsy from Temecula, California. And that's what I wanted the Golf Channel to be. So when I was putting together the concept of the shows, and flying from New New York to Wimbledon, the first shows that I came up with were, one, Golf Talk Live. Every single week, the greatest in the world, whether it was Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Meg Mallon, Pete Dye, uh, Jim Flick, uh, whomever it was, was going to come on the set. I was going to have a host interview them, and people from around the country were going to get a chance, and they were going to be able to do uh, – speak to Arnold Palmer. And that was going to be something these people were going to be remember the rest of their lives. And it was going to be Golf Academy Live where we we're going to have the greatest instructors in the world on and guys who you couldn't even pay if you wanted to because they charged you $2,000 an hour. But for 90 minutes, you're going to be able to watch these people and call in and get instructions. And there was going to be Golf Channel Workshop where people who liked to tinkle with their, their clubs would be able to figure out. So it went on and on and on that the intimate interaction part of the golf channel was going to be the predominant thing that drove the channel. Now, obviously there was going to be some tournaments or it was going to be the, you know, the shells, wonderful world of golf. 
know, it was going to be our version of ESPN Sports Center. But, you know, for me, it was going to be the intimacy. And lo and behold, every piece of the puzzle that I had put together all fell in place. I was very blessed. I got the right people in. And um, it, it, it was just a really fabulous launch. And as I said, we had one opportunity that when the Golf Channel started, it was either going to be a success or it was going to fold like a cheap deck chair. And the advertisers and the distributors and the people that gave Joe $80 million were either going to buy into it or they were going to get rid of it right away. And luckily, it looked beautiful. People believed in it. Money started to come in. Everybody was paid every single week. And it turned out to be what it is today until the changes have now happened. Michael, just one more before I let you go. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up one of the great producers of all time. And that's our good friend, Keith Hirschland. And you brought Absolutely. Keith in. You had a couple of other um, uh, interns in there, a couple of production assistants that have gone on to become uh, tremendously successful. And Scott Van Pelt and Kelly Tillman. Talk about those three. Well, it, you know, obviously one of the, you know, I wanted great producers who were great storytellers, and I did my homework and asked around the industry about who was the best person out there to be able to produce live golf, and the name Keith Hirschland popped up a few times. And so Keith at the time was working for ESPN. I got in touch with him uh, after a few phone calls. And I said to Keith, I want you down here in Orlando, Florida. I'd love for you to, to possibly do our live golf. I want to meet you. And Keith flew down. We got to play about nine or 12 holes of golf. I loved Keith. I loved his passion. We felt the same way of takeoff. I said, oh, and by the way, you've got about um, 24 hours to get back to me with a yes or a no. Otherwise, I'm moving on. So I, don't, I think wow. I probably scared Keith. But uh, he went back home at the time, talked to his family, took the job, came back down. And I'll tell you what, without Keith uh, and many other top quality producers, um, the Golf Channel would never have made it. And, you know, the great thing about being a great leader is trusting the people around you and having good people around you. You know, you're only as good as the people. And if you have two people that think alike, you don't need one of them. And that's what I loved about Keith. You know, Keith could manage, he could produce, yeah, he, he could. He, he was just a terrific guy to work with. And I was, I've been very, very blessed, and I've been very, very lucky that we've stayed in touch for tw almost 25 years now. But it's, but it's, it, you know, it's sad to see the Golf Channel leave. But you know, I knew this was going to happen uh, back in 2013 when NBC you know, bought the property in Connecticut and they had the studios and Arnold wasn't around any longer. You, you just can't be burning money in Orlando, Florida, when you can take everything and put it in Connecticut. So it's a shame they're moving on. The, the shows are going to be different, but it doesn't surprise me one bit. Michael, before I let you go, let our listeners know, I mean, you're fascinating. Your life has been, you know, an, an up and down sort of thing. And we only got into a little bit of it tonight. So first of all, I'd love to get you back on the show. Let our listeners know Any, how they can follow anytime. you. 
they, you can always follow me on Mike J. Whalen. I don't talk. I don't talk as much sports as I do politics. So I don't know if you want to follow me or not. But uh, <laughs> you know, anytime you, anytime you, you're you're shorthanded for a guy to come back on and talk about the Golf Channel and how we really did it and go into the details of of uh, the X's and O's of the Golf Channel, you've got me anytime you need me. Well, I appreciate that very much, Michael. I can't thank you enough for being here and a part of the show tonight. We'll definitely do it again real soon. In between now and then, my friend, stay safe, and I look forward to catching up with you. And and same with you. Stay healthy and say hi to everybody, and, uh, and tell Kip I said hello when you get him on. I will do it. Take care, Michael. All the best in your family. We'll All right, Chris. Soon. It's always a pleasure, my friend, and keep doing the great work. I appreciate you, Michael. Take care. That's a great Michael Whalen. Mike J. Whalen is how you can follow him on Twitter. Folks, I mean, that's fantastic stuff. I mean, you think about, you know, you know, I'm obviously jealous as I could possibly be being, you know, the bad boy and the guy that got to go out there and play catch with the vertical many and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Stan Musial and, and uh, get to know uh, my childhood baseball hero, Willie Stargell. So that is, you know, in and of itself. But then all of the wonderful things Michael has had the opportunity to do. Ross Greenberg is a wonderful friend on the football side, and I know what a genius he is. And uh, to know that he and Michael were working hand-in-hand telling those great stories in HBO Sports is is phenomenal. And then, you know, getting the idea to, you know, start the golf channel from nothing, from nothing. And Michael scratched out, as he said, all of the shows, hired all of the people, and got it to where uh, it is today, really. If it wasn't for that foundation, they'd probably never go anywhere. So Michael's fantastic. I'd look forward to catching up with him again soon.